We've all had influences in our lives. If you looked at your life tonight, if you looked into the past of your life, you could identify influences that you've had. Now, some of the influences are positive. We've been positively influenced by people in our lives. Perhaps it, it was your parents that you were positively influenced by. Your, your mother, your father influenced you for the good in your life. And, and, and we've been positively influenced. We've been positively influenced by a teacher, a professor, or maybe a coach that we had in our lives. I think that probably if you go through school, you go through 12 grades, and then if you go into college or trade school or whatever, you count up all the teachers that you had, you can probably count one, two, or three of them that made an impact on your life. You can look back and say, you know what? It was that guy or that lady that just really kind of impacted me, that kind of helped me to, to you know, realize my potential, and, and they motivated you in that way. For some of you, you remember a coach who was a positive influence. He, he was there for you. They, he drove you to excel, not only in the sport that you were competing in, but in life. I remember when I was in middle school, living in Sarasota, Florida, over on the West Coast, and I played on the soccer team for my school, and I had a coach who had played actually for the Italian World Cup team. Yeah, the Italian World Cup team. And I can remember him even right now. My number was the number 10. I was the number 10 on the team. And I can hear him even now saying, 10, you must run. 10, you must run. And, I, you know, you forget a lot of stuff that people tell you. But for whatever reason, I can remember that coach, that Italian coach in that broken English telling me that. And, uh, and so I, I remember that. Now, perhaps there is a friend in your life that has been a great positive influence. They've, they've influenced your life for the better. They've influenced you towards greatness in your life. And you can think about that particular friend tonight. Now, not all influences are positive. We've had negative influences in our lives as well. And maybe you can think of some negative influences that you've had right now as you're thinking about your past, your life, your thinking. And you, think, you can think of some negative influences. Maybe you had a friend that didn't influence you for the positive. Maybe you had a friend that influenced you in a negative direction. They influenced you in the wrong direction. Some people, there's some people that are just a bad influence. They're a bad influence in our lives. I hope Mary Jo forgives me for telling this story, but when Mary Jo was in the eighth grade, she had a friend who was always eating sweets. And Mary Jo started to hang around this particular girl, and after she was hanging around this girl for a little while, she noticed, Mary Jo noticed that she actually started getting a little pudgy. And Mary Jo said, you know what? My friend is a fat influence, a fat influence. You know, there's some people that can be a bad influence. There are some that can be maybe a fat influence. Some people can be a negative or bad influence. And let me take it one step further tonight. Some can even be an evil influence, an evil influence. In the same way, there is an evil 
influence that is in the world. There's an evil influence that has even found its way into the church and into, as it were, as the church, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God from that sense. Why? Because the kingdom of God is made up of men and women that have a flesh nature, a a sinful nature, and and there is men and will be evil trying to influence the the true people of God, the church. And so uh, the Christian needs to be prepared. The Christian needs to be prepared and on guard in order to properly discern and deal with the evil influence of the enemy in their lives and in the church of Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to continue in our study of the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. Now, we've looked at two of the parables already. We dealt with the parable of the sower the first week. The second week, we dealt with the parable of the wheat and the tares. And tonight, we're going to deal with two of them, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Now, the kingdom parables really deal with principles dealing with the church, Men and women who were called to be sons and daughters of God. And these parables, well, they reveal secrets, secret principles that Jesus is articulating to those that would have an ear to hear and a heart to listen to really what he was saying and to want to understand. And tonight we're going to see the reality of the influence of evil on the church and even in the church and This evil, if the Christian is not ready and aware, can influence them negatively and badly. And so we're going to take a look at these two parables. And tonight, let him him who has an ear to hear, hear tonight what God would say to you. So let's tackle the first one, the parable of the mustard seed. Let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. It says this. Another parable he put forth to them, saying... The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now in this parable, the kingdom is likened to a mustard seed, which a man sowed in his field. So a man sows a mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed, Jesus tells us, is very small. In fact, he says here, it's the least of all the seeds. Now, I don't know if you want to get into discrepancies over which seed is exactly the smallest seed in the universe or whatever in the, in the, the, you know, the botanical world or whatever. But, but it's a very small seed. It's, it's, it's a small seed, the, the mustard seed. And Jesus uses the analogy here of the mustard seed. He uses it in this parable, in this teaching. Now, the, the, the mustard seed is also used uh, in another uh, teaching of Christ where he's talking to the disciples, and, and it's actually found in Matthew 17. You don't have to turn over there, but in that particular context, the disciples had difficulty casting out a demon, and they came to Jesus, and they said, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And he said, well, because of your faith, because of your faith. And if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will be able to tell, tell this mountain to move from here to there, and it will be done. And he, he was trying to encourage them to increase their faith so that they could begin. And he says, and if, and if you do this, there will be nothing impossible for you. And so he wanted to move them into the realm of 
faith. And so Jesus uses this, this analogy of the mustard seed. But here in this parable, the mustard seed is, in this story, is sown into the field. And, and it grows into a tree, this particular mustard seed, it's sowed into the ground, it's sowed into the field, and it, this particular happening here grows, and it grows up into a tree so large that birds, not bird, not a bird, but birds come and nest in the branches of this tree that is produced from this mustard seed that, was, that has been planted. Now, some have interpreted this verse as kind of a positive happening. There's something positive happening here, uh, and, and this is a positive, uh, we, we need to look at this from a positive standpoint. Uh, they say, look, the smallest seed is grown into a large tree. This little small thing has grown into this mighty tree, so much so, it's so big and so wonderful that birds can come and nest and find a home in this tree. And isn't that wonderful that even from the smallest of beginnings, uh, the kingdom of God can grow and become this, uh, this wonderful thing where birds can come and, and nest. And we find this uh, thing happening where birds are nesting even in the branches. And and, and there's something about that interpretation that's, that's pretty appealing. You know, I mean, I, I, like that, I like that interpretation. I think, wow, you know, yeah, don't despise the, the days of small beginnings. Something even small can, can grow into a mighty thing. I mean, I, my mind goes to the Calvary Chapel movement and Pastor Chuck Smith out there in Costa Mesa back in 1965. It was a little small church in Costa Mesa, California, and, and they called Chuck to be the pastor, and it was 25 members. It was 25 members. And, and actually, after he agreed to come, they, they, they actually called him afterwards and said, you know what, Chuck, don't come. We're just going to close the doors down. We're just going to shut it down. It's just not worth it. And you know what he said? He said to them, you know, no, I am coming. I am coming, and, and, and we're going to pastor the church. And he decided to make those 25 people the, the most loved and well-fed from the word people in that area. And the rest, they say, is history because the Calvary Chapel movement has spurned off 1,500 churches worldwide, and we are going into the nations of the world, and it's an incredible thing. So there's something incredible about that interpretation and that, that, that kind of way of seeing it. But I, I believe that the correct interpretation is, is something different. If, if you go to Israel today, uh, well, at certain times of the year, you will see small bushes or, or brushes on the hills there in Israel, and they have a yellow color to them. And these are the mustard bushes. And they're, 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 they're not trees, they're bushes. And, and you see a mustard bush, it never grows into a large tree. In fact, even if you want to take the analogy of that this is the black mustard bush or the black mustard tree, it's only a few feet higher than the bush. So we're not talking, even at the greatest mustard bush is, is, is only a few feet tall, and most of them are little things that you would see where you would look in the hills and you would see these yellow mustard bushes on the hills, and, and, and that's what it is. And so you really see that a mustard seed, if it's planted, it becomes this mustard bush, and it's really not of any size that you would have 
uh, even a bird, much less many birds, finding its nests and being able to nest in this particular uh, bush. And so really what we have is, a, is an abnormality here. We have something that has become abnormally large and so large that there's corruption in it and the, the birds of the air have literally come in and to nest within the branches. Uh, and so a mustard bush grows to about three feet, and if you want to just throw, just double that, six feet, you know, you'd have a six, well, I'm six foot tall, so you wouldn't have something that is, is the type of thing that where you were, are picturing uh, what Jesus is saying, this mighty tree, this mighty must, mustard tree where the birds of the air have come to nest in it. The imagery here, again, is something small, growing, but abnormally large. The tree is so large that birds have come and nested in its branches. Now, if you remember from the parable of the sower, some seed fell by the wayside and birds came and devoured the seed that was sowed. And Jesus actually interprets of the seven parables here in chapter 13, Jesus interprets two of them for us so that we need no interpret. We don't, we don't need an interpretation. We've got it there for us. Jesus gives it to us. And in that interpretation of the parable of the sower, we're told that the bird that comes and steals the, the uh, seed away on the wayside is none other than the wicked one. And now we have the imagery here in this parable of the birds nesting in this abnormally large mustard tree that is we have this the same imagery of the influence of evil and wickedness that has come and perched into this particular tree so here the birds are ministers of the devil they're ministers of evil and they've come and they've nested in this overgrown tree now satan has has had a strategy from the day that the curse was delivered in the garden, and we've, we've talked about that quite a bit. It's, I, I, I referenced that verse there, those verses in Genesis 3 quite a bit. But anyways, uh, from that moment that the curse was given down and, and there was mentioned that there would be a battle of the seeds, and we talked about that last week, so there's going to be this battle of the seeds. And so from that moment, the devil's strategy, Satan's strategy was, I am going to make war with this seed, and I'm going to take it out. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to try to stamp it out from the face of the earth. And so through Cain, he brought murder into the world uh, uh, by murdering Abel. And, and that was the, 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 the one who went wrong and went in the wrong direction uh, when his uh, offering wasn't received by God. And so he becomes jealous and he becomes in this fit of rage and he goes out to kill the one whose offering was accepted. And so from that moment, you see the strategy play out throughout the rest of Scripture. You see the strategy of the enemy trying to stamp out or kill the seed of the woman that would eventually bring the seed of Christ, the seed, the seed capital S, that would actually once and for all deal with the seed of the serpent. Amen? And so you can trace it. You can go through the whole scripture. You can go one by one. You can go through the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I can take you all the way through. We can do a thorough Bible study to show you the strategy of the devil, how his goal was to stamp out and kill the seed of the Lord. You, you notice you pick it up in Exodus. Here God was going to send a deliverer, one that would deliver uh, the people of Israel out of the bondage of evil. And what does he do? He puts it into the heart 
The devil puts it into the heart of, of Pharaoh to have every Hebrew boy two years and under killed. And there's the strategy. We're going we're gonna to stamp out this deliverer that's going to come. We're going to deal with these Hebrew people. We're going to deal with this seed of God. And then, I, I don't have time to do an Old Testament survey class, but you can trace it all the way through Joshua going into the land and dealing with the giants and the seed of the devil. You can deal it all the way through the judges. You can deal it with David standing up to the Goliath, the abnormally large Goliath who was a seed of the, of the enemy. And you can go and do a thorough Old Testament survey of it until you get to the New Testament. And the seed of, of God is finally going to be born into the world. And what does he do? Satan puts it into the heart of another man named Herod to stamp out the seed that would come. And, he, and Herod decrees, based upon the testimony that he received from the wise men of the dating of the time that they saw the star, that we're going to stamp out all the uh, male children two years and younger in and around the Bethlehem area. And this strategy continued. Now, as the church was born in Acts chapter 2, and, and you see the book of Acts, and you see the church beginning to flourish and all this, well, you, see, you still see the strategy. Even in the book of Acts, a man named Saul of Tarsus trying to kill the Christians and trying to stamp them out until Jesus actually had to knock this guy over and say, why are you doing this? Saul of Tarsus. And he says, who are you? And the voice says, it's Jesus whom you're persecuting. Of course, the rest is history with Saul. But the, the, but the persecution of the church trying to stamp out the seed of God, the true seed of God, continued as the church grew. Now, what you have for the first 200 years of church history, well, yeah, first two, two to couple hundred years of church history, you had this massive persecution. If you look through the first 200 years of church history, you have persecution to the degree that it was deadly, <laughs> almost, to confess uh, uh, your faith in Christ. And, and, and the church grew under this type of persecution. The, it, 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 the devil actually found that, uh, you know what? I can't stamp this thing out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I just can't stamp this thing out. So he developed a new, another strategy. He's still got that one. He still has that strategy, but he adopted another strategy, and, he, and it's, this, it's the old, if you can't beat them, join them strategy that the devil uh, adopted. And we see this play out in, in the Roman Empire under a man named Constantine. You know the history? He was, he was one of a couple of people that were actually fighting for the power of the Roman Empire. And he was trying to, to, to gather a, a coalition of people that would actually be able to bring him into victory and, 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 and into that role where he could rule and reign in the Roman Empire. And, and as the story goes, and this is all from the histories, there was one day that Constantine uh, saw, he heard a sign, he saw a sign and he heard a voice, supposedly. Okay, so I, I, I don't know. This is what we've been told. We can't corroborate it or anything, all right? But anyways, this is what the history tells us, that Constantine saw a sign and he heard a voice and the voice said, conquer under this sign or with this sign. You can dispute over the exact language or whatever it is, but th that was the idea. And so from that moment, Constantine said, 
well, wow, I know what to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gather a coalition of Christians, and if I get the Christians to, to kind of support me, that can just kind of catapult me right into the rule in the Roman Empire. And this is exactly what happens. And, and the, that coalition that Constantine develops whisks him into the rule and reign in the Roman Empire. And as Caesar, he issues what's called the Edict of Toleration in 315. And what happens when... Now, there's a good thing with the Edict of Toleration, and then there's a subsequent bad things that happened. When the Edict of Toleration was given, what it did is basically it legalized Christianity. Can you think of it? I mean, up until this point, Christianity is not, you know, don't, don't, don't go out on the street with your, like, little ichthus fish and uh, stand on the, you know, street corner in, 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 in you know, in the late 200s in, in the Roman Empire. But um, and that's the, all the stories of the Christians' hidings in the catacombs and all that. That's, that's all from that era, okay? So the Edict of Toleration legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. And what ha- so that was a good thing. The bad thing is the church ends up becoming married with the paganism of, of, of Rome of the era, okay? And so what happens is you have this great thing. Oh, Christianity's legal. Isn't it great? Wait a second, over here it's bad because now the, the church is actually being married to the world because now you've got the, the rule of the Caesar basically bringing all of the Roman paganism and walking that right in the front door, right into the church. You see, the ruler of Rome in, in pagan Rome was called, what was he called? He was actually called, and I don't want to flip anybody out, but this was the title, Pontifus Maximus was the title. Now, you see where the... The paganism had walked right in. Here's what happened. Leaders within the Roman Empire became, became teachers in the pulpits, in the church, in the various churches. And what happened was, as the, as the thing began to grow abnormally large, not according necessarily to the way that God would have had it grow, that you had the birds of the air coming in and nesting in the branches. And what they did was, and I don't have time to give you like, 1,200 years of church history tonight, okay? And, you, and I, I'm sure, pretty sure you wouldn't want to hear it, amen? Anybody want to hear like 1,000 years of church history? Raise your hand. Uh, there's actually a couple takers on that. Can you believe it? That more than, I mean, that was almost half. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to spare you all that. And I, I'm going to spare you all that for another time, okay? But, but needless to say, over the years, what happened was the church, led by Rome, actually took control of the Word of God, and they took it out of the hands of the people of the laity. Whew, this is heavy. They took it out of the vernacular of the laity. They put the Bible translations all into, into uh, Latin, and they literally actually chained the Latin Bible to the pulpit in the, in the, in the chapels. And they would tell the Christians, no, no, you don't, you don't need to read the word. So this is what happened. You see this happening, and this is an influence. It wasn't until the 1500s, okay, when you had the early translators. This is why they died. This is why Martin Luther stood up to what was going on. This is when you talk about the names, when you talk about the, uh, the, the Wycliffs 
of the world, and you talk about the Swingleys and the, all these names that you could go through, these guys were the guys on the front lines saying, no, we're going to give the word of God back to the people, and we're going to put it in their hands, and we're going to translate it into German, and we're going to translate it into these other languages, and we're going to get the word of God back to the people so that they can know the word, and they can be people of the word. Amen? And so for a long, long time, you had this happening in the world. And so really, when you see this small little mustard seed that has grown into this uh, anomaly, this abnormal, abnormality, and the birds of the air coming and nesting in the branches, Jesus was actually warning. Remember, the purpose of these parables was for people who had an ear to hear what was saying what Jesus was saying. And he was giving secrets of the kingdom. And he was, it was really kind of giving warning to the people of that particular era. So Charles, what are you saying? <laughs> you might ask. I'm saying that an evil influence was injected into the church that bloated its size. And now the birds, the ministers of Satan are nesting in its branches. And the birds have stolen the word away from the people. And what you immediately are left with is a corruption in the church. And this would actually take time to, to show you through the hundreds of years of, of what happened in that time. And so the lesson for us is we've got to be on guard. We've got to have a discernment to look at everything that's happening in the church, in the world. We've got to be people of the book. We've got to be people of the book. Not that, not that, well, the pastor, well, he knows it. Well, those people over there, they study it. Those guys over there, well, they have it and live by it. We got to be people who are people of the book, people of the word. And we've got to have this discernment. Satan will employ the same tactic that he has on the church at large. He will employ the same tactic in your life. The same tactic to literally steal the word from the church and from the people at large in the church. He will employ that same tactic in your life. And, and he'll say, I can't beat this one. I can't beat this one for some reason. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to conquer him from the inside. I can't beat her. I can't beat her for some reason. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to conquer her from the inside. And, and, and I'll steal away the word in, in their life. I'll steal, I'll steal the word away from him. I'll steal the word away from her. And, and, and I'll bring in corruption. And I'll bring in the world. And I'll take them down that way. And, and Christian, tonight, hear me. We've got to be people of great discernment and we've got to be people of the Lord and we've got to be people of the word so that we can have that discernment to see when things are happening, when things are happening globally, when things are happening here in the United States, when things are happening in our own lives, that we can have that discernment because we know the word that we can know of which way to go and how to feel and how to think about what's happening so we've got to be on guard. Paul told the Thessalonians this. He said, test all things. That's what he said. He said, test all things. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.21. He said it this way. He said, test all things. Hold fast what is great or what is good. 
So he says, when you hear something, when you see something on Facebook, I mean, they've actually come up with, with memes on Facebook, just like, you know, it's Abraham Lincoln saying the new iPhone's great or something, right? You know, and it's like, it's, it's, it's a way of saying, look, don't believe everything that you see on Facebook. Don't believe it because some guy sat there with Photoshop and came up with a cool little saying and a cool little quote and attached a name to it. No, we've got to test all things, hold fast to what is good and be people of the word, even testing the teaching that you may be hearing Okay, even tonight, test all things, hold on to what is good. Amen, this is what Paul is saying. We need to test all things. Everything that flies into our lives and tries to nest in it isn't of the Lord. Everything that flies into our lives and tries to nest in our lives is not of the Lord. Now, some people will say, oh, the Lord did this. Test all things and hold fast to what's great, to what's good. We need to learn how to stand against the birds of the air and not let their corruption into our lives. And so what does this mean? It means that we need to be people of the Lord, and I've already said it, people of the Lord and people of the book. Amen. So that was the first one. How are we doing? We've got another thousand years of church history to cover. All right. All right. You guys still with me? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Let's look at the parable of the leaven. The parable of the leaven, verse 33. It says this, In another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Okay, so Jesus goes on to another one. This is the fourth kingdom parable here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. This is a parable where many also, just like the one that we just went through, the parable of the mustard seed, just like that one, this is a parable where many have interpreted this to mean uh, that you have, they've, they've interpreted it positively, and they've said you have three measures of meal, the dough, right? You have a woman, she has the dough, it's three measures of meal, you have this dough, big dough, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm following you, Jesus, I see this woman, she's got one of those tables, and she's, you know, the flyer, flowers flying everywhere, right? And, 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 and so, and then she takes out some leaven, and she sticks it into the dough, and all this, and, and then the leaven kind of goes through the dough, and, and oh, look, she's going to make bread, she's going to, you know, we're going to have muffins and bread, and all kinds of stuff. It's going to be wonderful, right? And so the idea here is that somehow the leaven is the spirit of God or the church in the world and the doughs of the world and, and, and somehow the spirit in, in, in and through the church goes into the dough and, and that's going to work its way just like leaven does all the way through that dough and it's, it's just it's this, this great thing and, and, and look at that. And, 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 and I will say this, that's, that's, that's a nice picture uh, praise the Lord for the church, the influence of the church down through the, 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 the years, the, the, the centuries, the millennium. Thank, thank God for, for the church um, bringing about the principles from the word that brought forth uh, the types of, of, of government that have brought freedom to people. Thank God for the principles of the word and the kingdom of God that have brought forth uh, principles that have, have meant so much to women. And, 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 and their issues and things. And, and it sounds really great and it's really encouraging. But if, if you're going to interpret this parable and hear it correctly, I believe that you have to interpret this as people would have understood it 
when Jesus taught this and in the context of the entire word in the context of the Bible. Now, leaven, if, you, if, you, if you're a Bible student at all, leaven is a picture of sin. It's, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a picture of sin. And that picture is woven all the way through the scriptures. So leaven in Jewish and biblical terms is a symbol of sin. Throughout the Bible, there are two things that are images of sin, that pictures that are used to, to describe and talk about sin. And those two things are leaven and leprosy. Leaven and leprosy. These are the two things. So whenever you see leprosy and lepers in the Old Testament, there's an entire chapter on someone being, how to be declared uh, healed of leprosy in the, in the book of Leviticus. An entire chapter of everything. If you're gonna, you've got to go to the, 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 the priest and he's got to look at you and he's, he's got to confirm the healing and all this. There's an entire chapter in Leviticus. And no one was ever, no one ever was able to use that chapter. <laughs> Except for one person, and he wasn't even a Hebrew. He was a Syrian named Naaman, okay? And if you count uh, Miriam, when she had, her hand was leprous for a week, okay, then her hand was made whole. Outside of those two, no one ever was like, here I am. I was a leper, and now I'm healed. And that's why it's so important when John's disciples, John the Baptist, asks, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says to them, are you the one? Are you the one or, you, or should we expect someone else? And, and John says to them, you, Jesus says to, to John's disciples, you tell them this. You tell John this. Here's what's happening. The, 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 those in bondage are being set free. The, the, the people who are oppressed are, 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 are being taken care of. The lepers are healed. Ding, 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 ding. Bells are going off. Bells are going off because, wait a second, what, the lepers are healed? Jesus is healing lepers and he's sending them to the priest to be, be healed. That, that is a picture of sin being forgiven. Amen? And so we're not here to do a whole thing on leprosy. We've got to go talk about leaven, all right? So there's two pictures of, of that in the Bible of sin, leaven and leprosy. And, and this is the picture. And so leaven, let's focus in on leaven. Leaven is a picture of sin throughout the Old and New Testaments. In the Passover, we see this. In the Passover, leaven is sin. They were to eat their bread without any leaven. When they were instructed to eat the, the meal of Passover, they were instructed to eat unleavened bread because one of the reasons was because they were going to eat the meal in haste. They were going to eat this meal so in such a hurry that they didn't have time to put leaven in it and have a nice dough rise and, and all this. They, were, they, were, they weren't going to have time. They were going to have time to this. We were going to eat it in vase. They were going to eat it such in a hurry that the instruction for how they would eat it was to have their, 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 their loins girded, right? Yeah, thank you. Their, their loin, you. You knew what I meant when I went like this. Yeah, gird, you, you, you know, they, were, they were to gird their loins, and that's how they were to eat this meal, right? And so, uh, and so then from the Passover, you would go into what? a week of, of a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they weren't to have any leaven at all in the house for the entire week. In fact, they were instructed to go through the Hebrews in the book of 
Exodus, they were instructed, and Leviticus, they were instructed to go into the house, and any leaven, they were instructed to take it out of the house for the entire week. They weren't to eat any leavened bread, and they weren't to have any leaven in the house. And, And Jewish people still do this to this day. You will find it when Easter rolls around, when Passover rolls around. Yeah, your Jewish friends will be going through the house, and they get all the leaven out of the house because it's a picture of sin, and they were they they got really uh, they 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 got into it in terms of getting this leaven out. In the Old Testament law, they were instructed to go throughout the home and get rid of any leaven. There could be no leaven. Leaven is a perfect picture of sin, a perfect metaphor. Leaven is sin because it corrupts by puffing up. Actually, the, the whole idea of leaven is it's actually a corruption of yeast, and, and, it's, and it actually, uh, I, I forget, I actually studied the, the history of how they discovered this, I think, in ancient Egypt, and they had left some dough out or something or some yeast, and it corrupted, and somehow it rose, and when they baked it, it baked out of the, all, the, all the stuff out, and so they were able to eat it, and they were like, oh, wow, we discovered something. This is great, you know? This is a new way to make, make cakes. And, uh, and so that's, that's the history on that if you want to look that up. And, um, and so anyways, leaven is the perfect picture of sin because it corrupts as it puffs up. It puffs as it corrupts. And, and so that's exactly what sin does. Sin, it, it starts as pride. It started as pride in Lucifer and Satan, and he uh, got puffed up in himself, and, 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 and it reeked out into, into sin, and it's the same thing in our lives. Sin, pride, puffs up, and is the mother of all sins. And so that's why it's the, it's the perfect picture. It's the perfect uh, metaphor of sin. Now, leaven is used as a type of sin throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Two times in the New Testament, Jesus says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In fact, in one place, he actually says to, to beware of the, of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. And so he's very careful when you look at that. Two times, Jesus uses that. Two times, Paul uses, says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so there's this idea of the leaven leavening through. So, so both the content and the context point towards the, this being a description of corruption that comes in through sin, through pride, and it finds its way even into the kingdom community, e- even into the kingdom community, the, what we would call the church. And so leaven is put in, leaven is put in, and it corrupts. You may even hear, see here an overlap to the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the tares, the wheat was sown, the tares were sown by the enemy, and they were allowed to kind of grow up together. And Jesus says, no, wait till the end. Then I'm going to send out my angels, and then they're going to get all the tares and gather them, and then they're going to gather the wheat into my barn. And so you even see a little bit of the imagery there. It's a picture also of the continued corruption of the church that the church saw with the mixed marriage of the world as the paganism of the world came in to the church from the 300s and continuing all the way up until today, even to this very moment. Now, you say, Charles, okay, I see this, the kingdom, the leaven, but what about this? It says the woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. What's this about? What is this that 
Jesus is getting at here. We, I think you're going to love this. You're going to love this. What's the deal with the three measures of meal? Three measures of meal, three measures of meal to an Arab, to a, to a Jew, would historically suggest and bring them back to Genesis 18 and the terebinth tree. Genesis 18 and the terebinth tree. You know, Abraham had this tree. If you read the book of Genesis, it's a great. All of a sudden, you're reading along, and you come to Abraham, and you're like, oh, man, this is great, Abraham, and the father of the faith and all this. And then you come, and he, and he, and he finds this tree, and he falls in love with this tree, and he's always kind of hanging out with this tree. And so he happens to be under this tree, this terebinth tree, and he gets an impromptu visit, an unannounced visit from three visitors, unannounced. Three visitors show up with him, three guests. This is believed to be a visit from the pre-incarnate Christ and two messengers, or others actually believe it in some way to be an incarnation of the Trinity. Some have actually made that assertion or that interpretation. But needless to say, we can, we can dis discern from the text that Abraham actually worships them, bows down. He's not corrected. We find anybody who's worshiping an angel sent from the throne of God that they're immediately corrected. We see that from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. Any angel, any fallen angel that receives worship is that, fallen, <laughs> and, and, and does not rebuke. And so we see these, these that are actually receiving worship underneath this terebinth tree. And so what does the text of Genesis 18 tell us? Abraham is greeted by these three visitors, and he bows and worships, and he has found favor with the Lord. And so what does he do? What does Abraham do? Here he's got three visitors under the tree, and he's like, oh no, what do I do? What do you do when people, people show up on your property, on your, uh, uh, at your house? You, 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 you got to show some hospitality, right? You got to show some hospitality and you got to get something. So what does he do? He runs to the house. He runs to Sarah's wife and, and, and he says, look, look, here it is. Genesis 18 verse six. You'll see it up on the screen. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. So what is Sarah going to do? Sarah is going to quickly get three measures of meal and knead it and make cakes. Now, does she have any time to put leaven into the three measures of meal? No, because these guys are here now. These guys are here now. Knead it out real quick, Sarah. Come on. You know, come on. We got these guys out here. Let's have a meal. You know, can you make some, you know, just go, go unleavened. Go unleavened. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so from that time, this actually was called the, the, the meal of fellowship, where Abraham has this fellowship with the Lord out under the terebinth tree. It's actually where he, he begins to hear about uh, Isaac, the son of promise, that's actually going to be given. Amen? Don't have time to go into all that. And so, because those fellowship cakes, cakes were made in haste, there was not time or reason to put in leaven. It, 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 and so, what is the picture? The picture is that in the parable, you have leaven, you have a woman kneading dough, three measures of meal, and she put... The horror, 
the horror of a Jewish audience. What? You put leaven into the three measures of meal? How can this be? How can this be? And, and, and you've got the horror of it. And so what is this a picture of? It's a, it's a picture that the church will not be perfect. It will be impure. There will be sin that comes in. There will be evil influence. And we saw that that goes all the way through church history. Uh, you see it all the way through, even to this very time. Leaven will be introduced from different people that will bring it in. Or sometimes maybe we might even walk it in. Not on purpose, but who knows? And so you have this leavening, corruption, contaminating. So what's the lesson for us? The lesson is pretty simple. Is we need to get the leaven out. <laughs> we need to get the leaven out of the three measures of meal. We need to get the leaven out of our lives. We need to get the leaven out. You need to get the leaven out of your life. And there are two things that you can do. There are two things you can do to get the leaven out of your life. First, bring, bring the brokenness of, of your leaven, the leaven that's in your life, bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord, and, and the Bible tells us that he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And secondly, get the things out of your life that are leaven. Cut it out. Cut out the things in your life. You may have activities that are leaven. This is where, okay, ding, 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 this is where it's hitting home, okay? We may have activities in our lives that are leaven, and we need to identify those, and we need to get those out of our life. We need to, get, we need to walk them right out of our life, amen? We actually need to get that practical with it. When, when they were told to get the leaven out of their house, here's how detailed it was. They, they, actually, would, they actually would inspect the walls of the house. There's actually a whole section in Leviticus about inspecting the walls of the home and making sure there wasn't corruption in the walls. They were to inspect the fabrics of their clothes. This is, this is how serious it was because sin is a corruption. And, and God says, I want, to get, I want it out of your walls. I want it out of your clothes. I want it out of your life. I want, I want you to drive it out. I want you to want to drive it out. And, I, and, and if you'll bring me any of it and confess it to the, to the Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so what, what do we need to do? We need to examine our hearts.